This is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the March 2010 podcast. This month we have a full issue with a variety of interesting papers. Sarah Forge will read the abstracts and I will return with some commentary. Prognostic value of the pulmonary dead space fraction during the early and intermediate phases of acute respiratory distress syndrome is by Rorich et al. They prospectively measure dead space fraction and other variables in 80 intubated patients during the early phase of ARDS and in 49 patients during the intermediate phase. They used multiple logistic regression analysis to evaluate the data. The primary outcome was in-hospital mortality. In the early and intermediate phases, the dead space fraction was higher in patients who died than among those who survived. In both the early and intermediate phases, the dead space fraction was independently associated with a greater risk of death. For every dead space fraction increase of 0.05, the odds of death increased by 59% in the early phase and by 186% in the intermediate phase. Age and sequential organ failure assessment score were also independently associated with a greater risk of death in both phases. The authors concluded that increased alveolar dead space fraction in the early and intermediate phases of ARDS is associated with a greater risk of death. Next, we have the paper, End Tidal and Arterial Carbon Dioxide Measurements Correlate Across All Levels of Physiologic Dead Space by McSwain et al. The authors hypothesized that end tidal PCO2 would reliably predict arterial PCO2 across all levels of physiologic dead space, provided that the expected end tidal PCO2 to arterial PCO2 difference is considered. 56 mechanically ventilated pediatric patients were monitored with volumetric capnography. For every arterial blood gas measurement during routine care, the authors measured end tidal PCO2 and calculated the ratio of dead space to tidal volume, or VDVT. They assessed the end tidal PCO2 to arterial PACO2 relationship in four VDVT ranges. VDVT was less than or equal to 0.40 for 25% of the measurements, 0.41 to 0.55 for 32% of the measurements, 0.56 to 0.70 for 31% of the measurements, and greater than or equal to 0.71 for 11% of the measurements. The correlation coefficients between end tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2 were 0.95 for VDVT less than or equal to 0.40, 0.88 for VDVT 0.41 to 0.55, 0.86 for VDVT, 0.56 to 0.70, and 0.78 for VDVT greater than or equal to 0.71. The authors concluded that there were strong correlations between end tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2 in all the VDVT ranges. The arterial PCO2 to end tidal PACO2 difference increased predictably with increasing VDVT. 
Lateral horizontal patient position and horizontal orientation of the endotracheal tube to prevent aspiration in adult surgical intensive care unit patients, a feasibility study, is by Mori et al. They tested the feasibility of the lateral horizontal patient position, measured the incidence of aspiration of gastric contents, and watched for any adverse effects related to the lateral horizontal position. Ten adult intensive care unit patients were ventilated for 64 hours in the standard semi-recumbent position and 10 for 12 to 24 hours in the lateral horizontal position. Tracheal secretions were collected every 8 hours and every 4 hours respectively and tested for pepsin, which is a marker of gastric contents. They also recorded clinical, physiologic, and outcome variables. The patients remained stable during ventilation in the lateral horizontal position and no adverse events occurred. Pepsin was detected in the trachea of seven of the semi-recumbent patients and in five of the lateral horizontal patients. The number of ventilator-free days was eight days in the semi-recumbent patients versus 24 days in the lateral horizontal patients. The authors concluded that implementing the lateral horizontal position for 12 to 24 hours in adult intubated intensive care unit patients is feasible and the patients had no adverse events. The incidence of aspiration of gastric contents in the lateral horizontal position seems to be similar to that in the semi-recumbent position. Next, we have the paper, Quality of Spirometry Performed by 13,599 Participants in the World Trade Center Worker and Volunteer Medical Screening Program by Enright et al. The objective of this study was to determine the ability of spirometry technicians in the World Trade Center Worker and Volunteer Medical Screening Program to meet American Thoracic Society spirometry quality goals. Spirometry technicians were trained centrally and performed spirometry sessions at six sites in the greater New York City area. The authors reviewed and graded the spirometry results for quality every month. About 80% of the spirometry sessions met the American Thoracic Society spirometry goals. In general, the spirometry technicians with the most experience were more successful in meeting the quality goals. Participant characteristics explained very little of the quality variability. The authors concluded that overall spirometry quality in this multi-center program was very good. Good. Efforts to improve spirometry quality should focus on the performance of individual spirometry technicians. Diaz Guzman et al. present the paper, Frequency and Causes of Combined Obstruction and Restriction Identified in Pulmonary Function Tests in Adults. They retrospectively reviewed 43,212 PFT sessions, which yielded 130 patients who satisfied their criteria for spirometry evidence of combined obstruction and restriction. The causes of combined obstruction and restriction were classified as either pulmonary parenchymal disorder or a combination of pulmonary parenchymal and non-pulmonary diseases. In 18 patients, no clear etiology of combined obstruction and restriction could be determined. The most common pulmonary disease was chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and the most common non-parenchymal disease was congestive heart failure. 
They also sent a survey to 55 pulmonary physicians, of whom 30 responded. The respondents estimated that combined obstruction and restriction occurs in approximately 20% of all the pulmonary function tests performed in their practices, and that pulmonary parenchymal diseases were responsible for 35% of all instances of combined obstruction and restriction. The authors concluded that combined obstruction and restriction occurs infrequently and is more commonly caused by a combination of pulmonary parenchymal and non-pulmonary disorders. Pulmonologists' impressions regarding the frequency and causes are generally discordant with the observed frequencies. Battery performance of four intensive care ventilator models is by Blakeman et al. They tested the duration of operation of the internal battery of four intensive care ventilators, Avita XL, Puritan Bennett 840, Avia, and Servo 300. They evaluated them with volume control and pressure control ventilation and with PEEP of 0 and 20 centimeters of water. They then randomly selected and tested six Avita XL and four Servo 300 ventilators from their inventory to determine the variability of internal battery duration among ventilators of the same model. The ventilator settings were identical to previous tests other than fraction of inspired oxygen, which was set at 0.6, and PEEP was 5 centimeters of water. The battery duration range of the tested ventilators was 20.5 to 170.5 minutes. Changes in breath type and PEEP did not significantly impact battery duration. Among the ventilators of the same model, the battery duration range was 5 to 69 minutes. Use of a compressor significantly shortened battery duration. There was no correlation between battery duration and battery age. The authors concluded that the duration of ventilator operation on internal battery ranged widely among the tested devices. Knowledge of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency among internal medicine house officers and respiratory therapists results of a survey is presented by Taliercio et al. They evaluated knowledge of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency with a web-based test containing 30 multiple-choice questions. Invitations to take the test were sent via email to all internal medicine house officers and RTs at the Cleveland Clinic Main Campus Hospital. They assessed test scores by profession, years of training experience, and self-assessed knowledge of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Of 332 invitees, 202, 61% responded, of whom 165, 50%, provided complete responses, 95 RTs, 66 physicians. The mean scores, percent of correct answers, were 54% and 52% for physicians and RTs, respectively. The scores did not differ among the physicians when examined by subspecialty or postgraduate education level. RTs who had graduated from a four-year respiratory therapy program had a higher mean score than those who had graduated from a two-year program. Respondents whose self-assessment of their knowledge about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency was somewhat knowledgeable, had higher test scores than any other self-assessed knowledge level regardless of profession. 
The authors conclude that these results indicate a generally low level of knowledge about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency among physicians and RTs. The next paper is by Johnston et al., and its title is Risk Factors for Extubation Failure in Infants with Severe Acute Bronchiolitis. This is a prospective observational study of consecutive infants with severe acute bronchiolitis and considered ready to be extubated. The authors calculated mean airway pressure and oxygenation index. Before extubation, they measured respiratory rate, tidal volume, rapid shallow breathing index, peak inspiratory pressure, and load force balance. Arterial blood gases were measured one hour before extubation. Extubation was classified as a failure if the infant needed reintubation within 48 hours. Extubation failure occurred in 15% of the 40 extubated infants. There were no significant differences in arterial blood gas values or mechanical ventilation parameters between the extubation success and extubation failure groups. There were statistically significant differences between the extubation failure and extubation success groups for two risk factors, weight less than or equal to 4 kilograms and tidal volume less than or equal to 4 milliliters per kilogram. Variables that had a large area under the receiver operating characteristic curve were minute volume less than or equal to 0.8 milliliters per kilogram per minute and peak inspiratory pressure less than or equal to 50 centimeters of water. Variables that had a small area under the curve were load force balance greater than or equal to 5 and rapid shallow breathing index greater than or equal to 6.7. The authors conclude that, in infants with severe acute bronchiolitis, the extubation process is complex because of the combined features of this disease. Correlation between the percent minute volume setting and work of breathing during adaptive support ventilation in patients with respiratory failure is by Wu et al. The authors studied 22 hemodynamically stable patients with respiratory failure who were on pressure support ventilation. They switched the ventilation mode to ASV and started at the 100% minute volume setting. They then increased the percent minute volume setting by 10% every 5 minutes until 1 to 3 mandatory breaths per minute appeared and called that setting the ASV target point. They then tested two additional percent minute volume, 20% below the ASV target point and 20% above the ASV target point. At the end of each 10 minute period, they measured respiratory variables, pressure time product and airway occlusion pressure at 0.1 seconds after the onset of inspiratory flow. In 82% of patients at the 100% minute volume setting, the actual minute volume was greater than the target minute volume. At the ASV target point, the average percent minute volume setting was 165% and was associated with a 40% decrease in pressure time product and airway occlusion pressure at 0.1 seconds, but minute volume did not change. At the ASV target point, the six patients with COPD had a lower mean airway occlusion pressure at 0.1 second setting than the 16 patients who did not have COPD. 
The authors conclude that the 100% minute volume setting was frequently not associated with a lower work of breathing in patients with respiratory failure. This issue begins with two papers related to the ratio of physiologic dead space to tidal volume, or VDVT. In 80 patients during the early phase of ARDS, and in 49 patients during the intermediate phase, Rory Chittall evaluated the prognostic value of VDVT. They report that increased VDVT in both the early and intermediate phases of ARDS is associated with a greater risk of death. McSwain et al. evaluated the effect of VDVT on the relationship between end-tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2. They found strong correlations between end-tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2 in each of the VDVT ranges evaluated. However, the arterial PCO2 to end-tidal PCO2 difference increased with increasing VDVT. In their editorial, Kalei and Siebel suggest that, given the relative ease of determining arterial PCO2 to end-tidal PCO2 difference, use of this physiologic variable may be useful to evaluate changes in VDVT, to assess lung recruitment, and to optimize gas exchange. Preventing microaspiration in mechanically ventilated patients is a key strategy toward reducing ventilator-associated pneumonia rate. One intervention involves placing mechanically ventilated patients into the semi-recumbent position rather than the supine position. However, as pointed out in the editorial by Calcutt, the data supporting the semi-recumbent position are relatively sparse. Recent experimental evidence suggests that maintaining the endotracheal tube horizontal with its external end below the level of the trachea may be more effective than the semi-recumbent position. This position is similar to the recovery position in basic life support. Mari et al. tested the feasibility of the lateral horizontal patient position in 10 mechanically ventilated patients. They found that implementation of the lateral horizontal position for 12 to 24 hours in adult mechanically ventilated patients was feasible, and the incidence of aspiration of gastric contents in the lateral horizontal position was similar to that in the semi-recumbent position. As Calcutt recommends, a larger prospective potentially multicenter trial should be undertaken to answer the efficacy questions about this novel technique that appears relatively safe and feasible. One of the unfortunate effects of the response to the World Trade Center attack is the possible health effects from exposure sustained by first responders to the disaster. A federally funded program evaluated more than 13,000 of those workers and volunteers. Enright et al. evaluated the ability of spirometry technicians in the World Trade Center Worker and Volunteer Medical Screening Program to meet American Thoracic Society spirometry quality goals. They found that overall spirometry quality in this multi-center program was very good. They also suggest that efforts to improve spirometry quality should focus on the performance of individual spirometry technicians. In his editorial, Haynes points out that high-quality spirometry data are essential not only for epidemiologic studies, but also for individual patient diagnostics. Thus, monitoring of spirometry quality coupled with technician feedback is necessary to improve spirometry quality. 
Diaz-Guzman et al. retrospectively reviewed over 43,000 pulmonary function testing sessions, which yielded 130 patients who satisfied the criteria for combined obstruction and restriction. The authors concluded that combined obstruction and restriction occurs infrequently and is more commonly caused by a combination of pulmonary parenchymal and non-pulmonary disorders. Interestingly, they also surveyed pulmonologists regarding the frequency of combined obstruction and restriction. These physicians' impressions were that there were much higher frequencies of combined obstruction and restriction than that observed from this retrospective review. Electrical power failure represents an important challenge in the ICU. Blakeman et al. tested the duration of operation of the internal batteries of four ICU ventilators. The battery duration range of the tested ventilators was 20.5 to 170.5 minutes. Battery duration was shortened by operation of an internal compressor, but not by PEEP or breath type. Interestingly, there was no correlation between battery duration and battery age. As the authors recommend, clinicians need to be aware of these differences in the event of power failure. Because alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is under-recognized, affected individuals often experience long delays in diagnosis before correct diagnosis. Tal Ursario et al. evaluated internal medicine, house officers, and respiratory therapists' knowledge of this disorder. They found a low level of knowledge as assessed by a web-based test of physicians and respiratory therapists. The scores did not differ among the physicians when examined by subspecialty or postgraduate education level. However, respiratory therapists who had graduated from a four-year program had a higher mean score than those who graduated from a two-year program. As the authors suggest, causes of under-recognition of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, including the possibility of poor knowledge, warrant further study. Johnston et al. evaluated the risk factors for extubation failure in infants with severe acute bronchiolitis. They found that lower minute volume and lower peak inspiratory pressure had large areas under the receiver operating characteristic curve for extubation failure risk in infants with severe acute bronchiolitis. As they correctly point out, in infants with severe acute bronchiolitis, the extubation process is complex because of the combined features of this disease. Further work is needed to evaluate the ventilatory predictive indices of extubation failure risk in infants with severe acute bronchiolitis. Adaptive support ventilation, or ASV, is a new mode of mechanical ventilation based on the minimum work of breathing principle. Although the operator manual recommends that the percent minute volume setting be started at 100%, it is unclear whether that setting reduces work of breathing in patients with respiratory failure. Wu et al. evaluated the correlation between the percent minute volume setting and work of breathing during ASV in 22 patients with respiratory failure. Interestingly, they found that the 100% setting was frequently not associated with lower worker breathing in patients with respiratory failure. They also found that the percent minute volume setting that significantly reduced worker breathing could be detected by increasing it until a few mandatory breaths begin to appear, which was on average 165% of the minute volume setting. 
This was higher in the non-COPD patients than in the COPD patients. These results suggest that the operator manuals suggested starting percent minute volume of 100% is probably inadequate for reducing work of breathing in most patients with respiratory failure. This month's case report by Walsh et al. describes respiratory distress associated with inadequate ventilator flow response in a neonate with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. The teaching case of the month by Tulzinska and Fleischmann describes a case of abdominal tuberculosis as an unusual cause of abdominal pain. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.